Thank you, church, for all you've done for us, all the blessing. Thank all of you from both churches for the offering this afternoon. I was in church last Sunday here in North Carolina, and the pastor said, uh, if, if you want to give a gift, give it an evening offering. He said, now, uh, he wanted them to distinguish it from the regular church giving, and he said, so right on the envelope, Mitchell or Bob or Bob Mitchell, he went through like six things, missionary, church planner. And I got up and I said, uh, just write on it gasoline. <laughs> Good night. Gasoline. This awful tax that this president's put on us, it's terrible. We'll, we'll go from here to Lake Anna, stay in a state park tomorrow night in central Virginia. And I'll guarantee I'll fill up. It'll take over $80 worth of gas. And I'll do that four times getting home. It used to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way, I don't think. But that's the way it is right now. Nathan, did you get those polls? Did I talk to you about the polls the other night for tapping people on the head who go to sleep? Like they used to in the colonial days, I was saying. Take a poll. <laughs> Maybe needed. I sat there thinking, what if I want to sleep in the pulpit? Uh, Nathan have to tap me on the head. You know, I went to sleep in a church once. Boy, I learned a lesson. I was down in South Carolina. We'd moved down there. Just knew and we were looking for a church. And we went to this church. This five-point Calvinist, I didn't know it when I went. He was a very interesting teacher. He had on a Sunday evening, the whole room packed out. There were like 300 people. And it was so hot in there. It was packed. And uh, it was in the fall. And uh, I went to sleep right in the middle of his sermon. And he said this. He said... If you live above sin, raise your hand. And I'd been sleeping. All I heard was raise your hand. So, and I looked around like 300 people and everybody's looking at me. Nobody else raised their hand. I never went back. I, I, oh, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I forget how I got out of there, probably through a window, I don't know. But uh, that was the most embarrassing thing that happened to me in church. Pastor Bobby sends his greetings to both churches. He sent a text and wanted us to greet you folk for him. I understand he's going to be down here in the fall. That guy, I got a text from him yesterday. And he says, Dad, will you be home April the 3rd? Well, I'm going to get home on Friday night. I texted back, yes. He texted back and wanted to know if I'd preach on Sunday. I texted back, no. <laughs> Isn't that awful? <laughs> I'm going to get back tired. I I'm going to have to go to church Sunday morning, then go back and sit in my easy chair and probably sleep that afternoon. Because I will. I'll be tired. I get tired. Uh, but he has Pastor Minot. He said, uh, if you don't want to, I'll get Pastor Minot. So Pastor Minot's going to preach but then I texted him back later I said uh, 
I thought you weren't going out to uh, Utah until the 17th. And he texts back and says, oh, I'm going down to Missouri to preach a few days for Tom Smith in Missouri. Going to run down there and pack. That guy runs more than any person I've ever known. And he doesn't fly. He either gets on that crazy motorcycle or, or in that new truck he's got and he takes off. But I'm kind of the same way. If we had to be at, say, a, a wedding in Florida, I'm going to drive over flying. I just don't like it anymore. I've had over 500 flights in my adulthood, uh, but it ceased back about 20 years ago. I haven't, 30 years ago, maybe I haven't taken another one. I just like to drive where I'm going. And it got worse during this COVID thing. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, John chapter number 3. Before I preach, I want to pray and thank God for His goodness. Heavenly Father, You have been so good to us. I thank You for Your love for us. I thank You that You shed the love of God abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost and So we love you and we will forever. Oh, thank you. I thank you, Father, that you've justified us freely by your grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Father, that you have made us what we could never hope to be apart from your grace, sons of God. Thank you. Thank you for setting us in the heavenlies in Christ. Thank you for setting us in a good New Testament Baptist church. What a blessing. Thank you for all your goodness to us. Thou art great and greatly to be praised. There's none like unto thee. None. The prophet said that his name would be called Wonderful. You certainly are wonderful. Now bless in this message this afternoon we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're in John chapter number 3. And I believe probably in both churches I've been in John chapter 3, 1 through 21 at some time. But this is a message with a little bit different slant. Some things I want to present to you. So follow along with me. We'll read verses 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews... The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. 
If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now John tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, was uh, he was one of a faction. The Pharisees were a faction who were strict in their observance of the external forms of religion. And they considered themselves eminently more righteous than all other people, even more righteous than other Jews. They were generally hypocrites who thought very highly of themselves, and they despised others, and that's the way hypocrites operate. They think very highly of themselves, and they can't help but despise others. They esteem themselves better than others, which is just the opposite of what the Bible teaches us to do. The Bible says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Why well, look down here at these men, and I esteem them better than myself. I look over here at Pastor... Uh, Byler, and I esteem him better than me, because I know me. I know all about me. I don't know all about him, and I esteem him better than self. John Gill says that the sect of the Pharisees, as corrupt as it was, was also the soundest, he said, quote, as having not only a regard to a Messiah and to all the writings of the Old Testament, but also believed the doctrines of angels and spirits and the resurrection of the dead, which the Sadducees denied, but yet they were implacable enemies of Christ, end of quote. I find that interesting. First of all, I find it interesting that so much of the doctrine of the Pharisees could be sound Bible doctrine, and yet they were the enemies of God. Sound in doctrine, yet the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they fought him throughout his entire ministry. Imagine that, sound in doctrine, denying Christ. Here we should learn that a man may know the Bible, and hold a good Bible doctrine and yet be lost. I believe a lot of people who hold a, some good Bible doctrine, know their Bibles, and yet they're lost as can be. Also, we should note that a man's doctrine may be sound and his practice unsound. 
There are a lot of churches that way. Doctrine sound, go read their websites. Read their doctrinal statements. Boy, this is a good church. Whew. Then you get there and their practice is unsound. Many times through the years, I've had folk come to me and say, uh, have you heard so-and-so preach? On the TV or the radio, I guess, have you heard this person preach? No, oh boy, they are, oh, they're, they're good doctrine, good preaching. To which I've had to say, but the problem with that guy is his practice isn't sound. He may sound good on the radio or on the TV, but you need to quit listening to him. His practice is not sound. You see, even among independent Baptist pastors and churches today, there are so many whose doctrine is commendable, but whose practice is deplorable. You read what they believe on the website, and then you go to the service, and uh, the worshiping, the, the methods of serving and worshiping is downright heretical. They are worldly and downright ungodly in their worship, their music, and that kind of thing. And then secondly, I find it interesting that one of the Pharisees would come to Jesus and desire to engage him in a conversation whereby that Pharisee might learn something from the Lord. Generally, the Pharisees loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Jesus said in verse 19 that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. However, Nicodemus seems to be a man who is searching. He appears to be interested in truth, so he comes to talk to the Lord Jesus. This guy was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the great council of Israel at that time. It was made up of 71 men, and uh, it was, uh, in essence, the supreme court of the nation, Israel. It was made up of chief priests, elders, scribes, lawyers, and others learned in Jewish law. And most of these men were aristocratic. Nicodemus was an aristocratic, well-intentioned, but spiritually unenlightened man. A lost man at this point in his life. He was a Jew, but lost. The Lord Jesus came unto his own, and his own, the Jews, received him not. He was a Jew, but at this point in his life, he was lost. He was a member of the great Sanhedrin, a religious leader, but atheos, without God, no God. He had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. The word form in 2 Timothy 3, 5 speaks of a semblance or a token appearance of the real thing. Boy, there's a lot of them out there, religious leaders and religious people, with a token appearance of the real thing, a semblance of the real thing, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. It's all over the country and all around the world. Religious leaders and people who call themselves Christians who are without God. The world is full of people today who claim to be Christians, but by their works, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is these people that Jesus will say to these people that Jesus will say at the judgment, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? You've talked to them. They're all over the place. My, my especially in the South. Lord, 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 Lord. They talk like they're Christians. 
but they'll get before the Lord Jesus and he'll say, why call ye me Lord, Lord? You didn't do what I said. You didn't obey the Bible. You wouldn't believe the Bible. You didn't even get saved. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And they'll be cast into a lake that burneth with fire and brimstone forever. In verse number 2 it says, The same, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi. Now this is a title of respect which was usually reserved for Jewish teachers who had a formal education. The Lord Jesus didn't have a formal education. But Nicodemus, having recently observed the works of the Lord Jesus, was willing to uh, uh, grant him the, the title. So he had some respect for the Lord Jesus, but he was not fully aware of who the Lord Jesus Christ was at this point in his life. He wasn't aware that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. It says, for no man, he said, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, those miracles which Jesus performed were intended to declare that God the Father had sent him and was with him. The Lord Jesus never performed a miracle to bring glory to himself. You ever notice that in the Bible? He never performed a miracle just to bring glory to himself. But the miracles revealed that God the Father was with him. Not on one occasion when he raised uh, Lazarus from the dead. You'll note in that passage of Scripture that as he pro- approaches the grave, he pauses and he prays heavenward to the Father in the presence of all the people so that they'd see him pray and request this of the Father. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave and the Father's glorified. The Lord Jesus sought to glorify his Father. Man, we ought to seek to glorify his Father. We ought to seek to bring glory to the Father and the Son. He never performed a miracle simply to display his power and bring glory to himself. Verse number 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, that's amen, amen, you understand that. Amen properly signifies truth. When John records in the Revelation that Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness, it means that Jesus is the truth, the faithful and true witness. And what does the faithful and true witness say? Well, look at the verse. I say unto thee, Jesus, the amen, the truth, the faithful and true witness, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, please observe in this discourse with Nicodemus that the Lord Jesus teaches him some great Bible truths. I'm not preaching a salvation message per se, though there's enough here to get anybody in this room who's not saved, saved, if they'd listen and believe. It's not a salvation message per se. I want us to observe some things. I want us to observe that the Lord Jesus teaches Nicodemus some great Bible truths in this passage of Scripture, and I contend that these truths are the same truths which we are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to teach all nations. These great truths which he taught Nicodemus 
we are to take and teach to all nations. The first great truth here would be this. The necessity of regeneration for all men everywhere. All men everywhere need to be born again. The necessity of regeneration for all men everywhere. We find that in verses uh, 3 and 5. When Jesus says, except a man be born again. When he says, except a man, he uses an expression which is generic, and it's designed to include all men everywhere, and speaks of each and every one of those men, whoever they may be, wherever they may be. Every man, wherever he is, needs to be born again. In all the wide world, every man needs to be born again. So the point then becomes this, that no person anywhere on the face of this earth is off the hook. Every person needs to be born again. Now, in an interview some years back with him, I think it was Red Book magazine that was interviewing him, he backtracked when questioned concerning the heathen who have not heard, the go- have not heard gospel preaching and stated that he no longer believed that, quote, pagans in far-off countries were lost, were going to hell, if they did not have the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them. That's what he said. But that squarely contradicts the Bible. He was dead wrong on that. Jesus said, except a man. Each and every man anywhere in this whole world, whoever he might be, wherever he may be, must be born again. He cannot see or cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to go every time with what Jesus says. Every time. What did Jesus mean when he stated that men cannot see the kingdom of God apart from the new birth? Well, that idea is that they could not perceive, discover, or experience the kingdom of God. Apart from the new birth. He was speaking of man's incapability to have part in the kingdom of God without the life and presence of the Holy Spirit, which comes from being born of God. So the bottom line is that those who have not been born again cannot have part in the kingdom of God. Period. When I was born again, here's what happened. The word of God was preached to me. And the Holy Spirit brought conviction to bear upon my heart. I realized that I was lost and in need of being saved from sin and hell. I suppose it was Billy Graham that uh, first stirred my heart. I remember my parents had got way back in those days one of the first TVs in the little town we lived in and set it over there in the corner and it was one of those screens was in a round screen, a circle and black and white. One of the first things I remember seeing is the Billy Graham campaign. And he preached hard way back then. And I believe that's what started it in my soul. Well, I went for years, and then as I mentioned this morning, there came a time that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was preached to me when I was, oh, it was 10 or 11 years later when I was 19 years old. I heard how that Christ died for my sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day for my justification. 
Furthermore, I was told that as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God. I learned that the Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Then realizing that Christ suffered shame and humiliation and untold anguish and pain as he died for me, I exercised repentance toward God and confessed that I was a wicked sinner and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was born anew. Born again. And at that moment, I experienced a supernatural change. Now, I'm not talking about something that I felt or some emotional experience I went through, but a work of the Holy Spirit in me, a supernatural change in my soul wrought by the eternal power of the Holy Spirit as he made me a new creation in Christ, a new creature. Paul said, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The idea is that that man who has trusted Christ or who has been born again is a new creation. I was, you see, prior to being born again, a child of Satan. But now I'd become a child of God. I was a slave to sin, but now I was delivered from sin's bondage. Boy, that's a wonderful thing. I was, prior to crying out to God and receiving Christ as my Savior, in bondage to sin. Bound by the shackles of Satan. In a deep, dark pit. But God brought me out and God loosed me. God applied the blood of the Lord Jesus. I was saved. I was, before I was saved, a rebel at enmity in my heart against God. But now I love God above all. I love God more than anyone, more than anything or anyone in this whole world. I was living for myself, but now I live for God. I was hell-bound, but now I'm heaven-bound. I was dead in trespasses and sins, but now I'm alive. If you ever hear that Bob Mitchell died, don't believe it. <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> just, I just changed residences. I'd be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. The idea that a man has been born again means that he has become partaker of the divine nature, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye may be made partakers of the divine nature. Secondly, I want you to observe that Jesus taught Nicodemus that the way to eternal life is through faith in Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. You see, now, these truths which he taught Nicodemus, I'm saying to you, need to be taught to people in the regions beyond us as well as people here at home. They need to be taught to people worldwide. The way of eternal life is through faith in Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. How are men born again? The simple answer is by being fully persuaded that Jesus Christ is whom the Bible claims that he is and being confident of that by committing oneself to him, fully trusting him for eternal salvation. And this is essentially what we mean when we say that we have received Christ or that we have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Not one man will ever be born again apart from the convincing work of the Holy Spirit as he uses the word of God as the word is preached. So we need to get the word of God to them. You see what I'm saying? 
we need to get the word of God to all the world. We need to get the gospel of Christ to all the world. Peter said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Holy Spirit opens a person's heart to receive the word, and then by means of the word of God, we are ultimately quickened or born again, born anew, born from above. And then no man will ever be born again who is not convinced of his sin and experiences repentance as he believes in Christ. So first the Holy Spirit opens the heart, making the sinner sensitive to sin, sensitive to the word of God, but he is not born again without contrition. True repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit opens the heart to the word. The word convicts and the sinner responds. Saving faith is believing God based on his testimony and relying on Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. And that essentially involves faith in his redemptive work. The redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ involves him as the sinless Lamb of God becoming our blood sacrifice as he gave his life on the cross of Calvary for us. And as Moses lifted up in the, the serpent in the wilderness, even so, he said, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you know that that's a reference to Israel's history and how that brazen serpent was put on a pole and those who were bitten by those serpents, thousands had died, but those who were bitten, if they'd look to the pole, if they'd look to the serpent on the pole, they'd be delivered, they'd be healed, they'd be saved. I used to wonder when I was a young Christian, why a serpent to represent the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it represents the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on that tree. And when we look to him who bore our sins in his body on that tree, we can be saved. Jesus became sin for us. Wow. I heard Bobby talk recently about that, and he talked about those three dark hours on the cross and what God was doing during those hours of darkness. Is every rotten, stinking, filthy thing you've ever said that's wrong and a reproach to God and every act we've ever committed, every lie we've ever told, every filthy thing we've ever done was placed on Jesus Christ as he suffered there. That was a powerful sermon. Next, I want you to observe with me that Jesus taught Nicodemus, this is three, the infinite love of God toward the world. Towards the world. For God so loved the world. What's the world? Well, the idea there is the entire human family, all of mankind, and that's amazing. You know what's the amazing thing about that? It's a reference to an ungodly, unlawful, ungovernable, rebellious race which has continually resisted God and been at enmity with him. Yet God so loved that race. He loves the world. And his love is expressed in the giving of his son into the hands of these same filthy rebels to crucify his son. That's how much God loves us. 
God loves you and he desires your welfare. God loves the world and he desires the welfare of men. When I say men, that's generically men, women, boys and girls, all people. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The degree of his love was that he so loved. Somebody said there's an eternity in that little word, so. God didn't just love, he so loved the world that he did this. He gave his only begotten son. The idea behind only begotten is an only child, but even more than that, it refers to the only one of a kind. There's none other like him. Never was, never will be. His only begotten son. John Gill said, No other than his son by nature, of the same essence, perfections, and glory with him, begotten by him in a way inconceivable and inexpressible by mortals, and his only begotten one, the object of his love and delight, and in whom he is ever well pleased, and yet such is the love of God to Gentiles as well as Jews that he has given him in human nature up into the hands of men and of justice and to death itself. My, what God did for us. The infinite love of God. And then number four and last... We observe that Jesus taught Nicodemus that the unbeliever is under condemnation. Verse 18. The Bible plainly teaches that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, there's no condemnation. You're seen by God as righteous as his own son, Jesus. Because his righteousness has been imputed to you for having believed. But those who have not yet believed they're condemned already it means that they have been pronounced guilty before God and are under the sentence of condemnation so that if they die in a state of impenitence and unbelief they will go to hell and they will eventually suffer everlasting destruction from the presence of God in a lake of fire that's horrific for them. We can't imagine. We need to try to. But we can't imagine. Forever. And ever. And ever. Under the condemnation of God. As I was talking about. This morning. Fit to be burned. So I conclude. This Pharisee named Nicodemus approaches the Lord Jesus and the Lord teaches him some great Bible truths. He teaches him, number one, the necessity of regeneration for all men everywhere. Every man needs to be born again. He teaches him, number two, that the way to eternal life is through faith in him and his redemptive work on the cross. He teaches, number three, the infinite love of God toward the world. And then he teaches Nicodemus, number four, that the unbeliever is under condemnation. So then, here's what I contend as we close the missions conference. I contend this, and rightly so, that these truths which Jesus taught to Nicodemus are the same truths which we are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver to the nations. He said, Go ye therefore and 
teach all nations. We need to deliver these truths to the nations. Now follow my logic here. If the unbeliever is under condemnation, and he is, and if he will go to hell if he dies in his sins, and he will, and if he must exercise repentance toward God and faith in Christ in order to be saved from his sins, and he must, and if faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and it does, then we must get the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. To the world. We've got to reach people at home and we've got to send those missionaries to the regions beyond to reach people who are dying, facing hell and everlasting destruction in a lake of fire. God help us to do everything that we can to accomplish that task, that commission, which the Lord Jesus Christ has given to his churches.